Good morning. Welcome to Plainfield Bible Church. And you know, we just sang that song, How Great Thou Art. I, I shouldn't even mention this. I'll probably get emotional before I even start. And so I could be a blubbering mess before I start. But when I hear that song, I hear my dad singing it. You may not know this, but my father was a prolific singer. He, he was a farmer, a humble farmer. And he would go out of your way to, his way to tell you that. But his ministry was to to sing. He had an incredible tenor voice. I did not inherit that. However, he used that, that gift, that it, talent really, that God gave him to use a spiritual gift of proclaiming the gospel um, anywhere he went. So churches and weddings and funerals and people would know who he was and he would sing and use that talent to then exercise the gift of proclaiming the truth of God's word. And when you sing songs like this, and we sing songs like this, it reminds me of the great tradition of faith that so many of us have enjoyed. And knowing that my father is in the presence of the Lord, seeing him face to face, and knowing just how great he is, seeing it in his fullness, seeing it as he is, and seeing being in his presence, a fulfillment, faith-becoming sight, of his life of following the Lord. It just, it just reminds me of that. It's an incredible thing. And it, it, it also helps me transition into what we're talking about today, which is the greatness and the power and the might of the God-man that is Jesus Christ. His authority and who he is. And as we consider this day, as Brock's already mentioned, and Pastor as well, that this Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry day 2,000 years ago, there were people worshiping him, praising him, and yet so many of them did not really understand who he truly was. They worshiped him and praised him for things that they thought he was, wanted him to be, were impressed with, but not necessarily who he truly was. And I'll, I'll just tell you, I think that we can struggle with the same and the reason, with, the reason why so many of them went from praising him to crying for crucifixion by the end of the week is because they had invented a Messiah that would fix a need that really wasn't their need. You see, our need isn't financial. Our need isn't emotional. Our need isn't relational. It isn't in our vocation. It isn't even within our own personal relationships. It is our sin. That is our problem. It's yours, it's mine, it's all of mankind. And when we don't realize that, we really don't understand who the Savior is. And we, when we can't see that we are spiritually bankrupt, we can't see who the Savior is. And as I think of that day, 2,000 years ago, as Christ triumphantly is walking, fulfilling prophecy, riding the donkey to come into Jerusalem, not knowing who he is, I fear the day for those who still don't know who he is. Because here's the reality, Jesus is returning. And he will return to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, when he returns, and believer, I pray that you return with him because your faith is in him and you have repented and believed. He will set his foot on the Mount of Olives. He will return to Jerusalem and it will be a different story. And so, as I've had to challenge some, uh, a young man who preaches the word this week, uh, in and around school, that every time we deliver any message, we must always deliver the gospel. I'll do that to you too. Before I even get into what we're going to study today, 
the most important thing that you can take away from this message today and any message that I or any other speaker stands in front of you and delivers is that you must repent and believe. You must believe on the only name that can save you, the name that is above every name. So as we sang, how great thou art, do you know how great he is? Do you know who it is that you're singing to? Do you understand the immense and important and dynamic and eternal plan of salvation that was worked out, lived out, and perfected in this man, this God-man, Jesus Christ? So I pray that that is true for you today. But as we transition into this time, I'd like you to go to John chapter 6 with me. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. I'd like to read the whole passage through and then break it down a little bit for you. So turn to John chapter 6, and we will read 1 through 15, and then take this apart a little bit today. So John 6, 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that, in these people, that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he, he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to have just a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was, a, there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as many as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left, those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let me pray for us before we break this down. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise your name, give you glory and honor. You deserve it. You are the only one worthy of this praise. And as we come into this most holy of weeks, I pray that you'll convict the hearts of all of us in here to make this special, to set this this week apart, to focus on what this week really is about, to dig into your word wholeheartedly, to understand it more, to grow closer to you, to become even greater servants, slaves of you. I pray for the, the soul in here, the sinner who has not yet repented and believed. I pray for them this morning, that you'll draw them to yourself. We know salvation belongs to you and you alone. I pray that the gospel message that is going to be very clearly given this week in this church, the incredible sacrifice that was made on Friday and the incredible victory that happened, the magnificent event that happened on Sunday, I pray that all of it, in conjunction with what we study today, convicts us, cuts us to the heart, so that we who do not believe in here will believe, repent and believe. And for those of us who do, to reset, to rededicate, to refocus on our job at hand. We know we've been given this incredible honor to proclaim your truth to the world around us. I pray that we do that in deed and in word. 
Be with us as we study your word today in this incredible miracle. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here's how we're going to break this down today as we go forward. And I need to turn this on for it to work, I think. Here's what we're going to do. We have to have a little bit of a setup. You'll notice at the very beginning of what we read, it says, after this. Well, after what? We need to know what that is. So we're going to see a setup in this. And then even within the setup, we have a pre-lesson on weariness that we'll have to spend a little bit of time with. And then as we go forward, what happens just before this incredible miracle? And we have a lesson, two lessons kind of embedded in here of kindness and of faith. A kindness and a faith. And then as we get into the miracle, we're going to see that Jesus is more than enough. More than enough. Abundantly more than what we would ever think or imagine. And then as we get into the aftermath of the miracle, as we look at this, we're going to see and unpack that Jesus was making a point here that he is the bread of life. And there is a spiritual need that is much more pressing for all of us than the physical needs that every one of us have. So this is what we're going to look at today, and this is where we're going, and hopefully as I explain these things and the Lord works through me and and teaches all of us, myself included, we can see a much more broad view, understanding of who our Savior really is. So let's start at the very beginning where we see this. We see in John 6, I have this second, but in John 5 we get a little bit of setup of this. It says, after this, and then it, it kind of, you know, talks about, well, what he does after this, but what is the after this? If you're in your Bibles, just skip back to John 5, verse 1, so we can see this entire chapter. Don't fear, I will not spend all of my time in John chapter 5. As a matter of fact, I couldn't do that. That's an entire other sermon. However, I did say, if any or saw this this week, my wife mentioned it to me. Maybe it was as an encouragement. But uh, John MacArthur got back into the pulpit, and I don't know if you saw him, he was all bruised up, and there's a lesson to be learned from that, too. He just keeps going. He went an hour and 17 minutes, and he's 85, I think, something like that. So I feel encouraged by that. I don't know about you. All right, John chapter 5. So as we look at this, look at how this begins. It says, after this... When we look at this, and it's kind of staging things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, as we, you stay in John chapter 5 for just a moment, because I'm going to walk you through this, but when we look at this particular thing, when he says these things, John 5, the feast that's referenced here, when we think about this, after this there was a feast, it's probably booths you know, or tabernacles, we call it that, and that's some, somewhere around September, October. That's, that's what most theologians think we're dealing with here. And the reason why this is important is just how much time has passed. What is the after this all about? When we get to John 6, 4, which we've already read, we see it that it's the Feast of Passover that we're approaching. So that's March, April. So this is the best guess that what we see between 5 and 6 is around six months of Christ and his ministry and what he's doing. Now, Clearly, within that time period, we have miracles being performed. There's going to be something referenced here about that. Many miracles performed. Remember what John tells us. If you were to write down all of Christ, of what Christ has done, the the books that would, would literally fill the earth, there would be so many events. So we know that that's true. But as you're in chapter 5, and you kind of look just briefly through your Bibles there, you can see some of these highlights yourself. I'll bring them up on the screen as well. I just kind of went through and just for the sake of time, looked at some of these highlights. 
What do we see here in chapter 5? And I'm not hitting them all, but that's why I wanted you to see it yourself. He's healing at that pool, the pool on Sabbath. We've covered that. He's establishing his equality with God the Father. So important that he's divine, that he is God incarnate. We've covered that many times, and I'm going to just warn you, I will keep coming back to that. If we miss this, we miss it all. If we miss that Jesus... What, if you believe that Jesus wasn't God, you don't understand who Jesus was. So that's important. He establishes this very early. Jesus then establishes his authority to, to, to give life, I would say, to forgive and also to judge. He predicts his resurrection early on here in John. Jesus declares his superiority to John the Baptist, not to, not to criticize John, but to tell you who John was and who he is. John will tell you the same thing. I must decrease, he must increase. I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. So John does the same thing. And then Jesus pointing to the writing of Moses to validate his Messiahship. And and we'll even see Moses referenced today. So we have a lot happening in in between this time and miracles being performed. And as we look at all of this, there's a little bit more setup that we need to do. So turn with him to Mark chapter 6. So that's John giving us a little bit of information. Now turn back to John to Mark 6. Really quickly. Mark 6. Because there's more that's happening here that we don't get from John. So we need to look a little broader into the scriptures. And we look in Mark 6, and that gives us a little bit of information. Now keep in mind, why am I doing this? Because we have this phrase, after this. So we need to see a little bit more. And this helps us as well to understand the state of both Jesus, emotionally, physically, and the apostles as we go through there. So Mark chapter 6. Verse 7, starting at verse 7, as we look at this. Mark 6, starting at verse 7. Here's what it says. He called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two, giving them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put, and, and, and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed to the people that they should repent. Now, I know we got one more verse, but I want to just stop there for a second. In our day and age, and I have had to deal with this quite a bit in my world, we love to throw this this particular word out of the gospel. It cannot be thrown out of the gospel. Repent is such an essential piece of belief and faith that if we throw that out, we throw out the gospel. John the Baptist starts the ministry, prepares the ministry with a message of repentance. Jesus begins his ministry with a message of repentance. He challenges his apostles to continue the message of repentance. And in the very first sermon that Peter delivers, he delivers a message of repentance. They have been preaching repentance all through the ministry, and we need to continue to do that. Verse 13, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and he healed them. Now, how long does this take place? Well, we don't think it's the entire six months, but it's for quite a while. And I'll just tell you this, as a a person who has been engaged in spiritual battle As a Bible teacher to teenagers for 20-plus years, it makes you weary. It makes you weary. Anyone who has taught the Word of God to any group of people 
It's taxing to you. Imagine being in the position of these apostles with this sort of power, maybe being the first to really deliver this gospel message with the Messiah at hand, and to do this with this sort of authority, and to see some reject. The text clearly gives us an indication that some rejected them outright, rejected the Savior that they loved outright. These men were taxed. They were tired. This was difficult. It was good and it was right. It's exactly what God wanted them to do. It's exactly where God wanted them to be, but it wasn't easy. And let me challenge, you some, with, challenge us together collectively, church. It isn't going to be easy for you either to do the work of the Lord, to do the work of an evangelist, to do the, the good work that God has set up for you to do beforehand, Ephesians 2.10. He never promises that this will be easy. It will be difficult, and you will be weary. But I'm going to note something about this, that this isn't isn't an excuse for us to just say, well, I need to step away then. I need to take a break because I've worked so hard. I want you to look here at Mark 6, 30. You're in there, so you can look at it in your own Bibles. But I brought it up here for you as well. Here's where we pick this story up in Mark's account as he's feeding the 5,000. So you see kind of the setup to this in during this six months. But as we skip ahead, in Mark's account of this, and I I didn't note this to you, but all four Gospels include the feeding of the 5,000. And that's kind of interesting because there's not very many things like that where we see uh, certainly the resurrection and the crucifixion are in all four, but to have a miracle articulated and written about in all four It's quite important, and this is one of those, and it's very unique in that. But let's look at the text. You're already in Mark, Mark 6, 30 through verse 33. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So back to John 6 for a minute in your head. Okay, After this, this is part of it, what they had done over this several-month period, and told them what they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Well, what does Jesus recognize? That's hard work. Rest a while with me. I get it. I've been in this with you. Remember, Christ, fully man, too. He was tired at times. He understood that his apostles were. He understands that about you, too. He understands that that's what's going on in your life, too, at times, as you serve him. You certainly have felt that in your life. Back to the text. Come away by yourself to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Notice verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. All right, so let's just stop here for just a moment. Okay, so we see the Lord doing something that is good. It is good to rest. It is good to contemplate. It is good. We see Christ doing this, getting away and and engaging in prayer with the Father. Now, for me, it's always been an interesting thing to consider the Trinity speaking to one another like this. It's hard for us to manage that, but Jesus is clearly teaching us what we ought to do as well. We need to engage in in prayer, be prayer warriors, not just for those around us, but for our own spiritual sanity, to understand that we have to have this incredible relationship with Christ that we engage in. He desperately wants to hear from you, and he desperately wants you to become more like his son, And a big piece of this is our prayer life. Remember, Philippians 4 tells us very clearly, be anxious for nothing. But through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, we make our requests known to Christ, and then the peace of of God will come upon us. This is very important to understand this, and as we go through that Philippians 4 passage, it tells us to think on things that are above, right? 
things that are excellent, things that are praiseworthy, things that are righteous and good and pure. That's the Word of God, isn't it? That's where we find that. And then as we continue on in Philippians 4, he said, then practice these things. But if we skip that first part, we don't talk to the Lord. We're going to try to do this on our own might. God knows that we need some time to get away. And that's what he's telling his apostles. But then there's a secondary thing to this. There's a secondary thing to this, and that's when you're weary, he reminds us of this. In verse 33, you clearly see it saying that there were people coming right away. I'll tell you, your rest may not last for long. There may be another divine appointment right around the corner, and you might not think you're quite ready, but the Lord knows you are. Get your rest when you can, but then what does Paul tell us very clearly here in Galatians 6? He says this very clearly in Scripture, and as you look at this, let us not grow weary of doing good. It can happen. The reason why Paul writes this is because it's real. You can grow weary in doing good. In due season we'll reap if we don't give up. So then as we have opportunity divine appointments to do these good things. Let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Certainly to those who are around us. Certainly to those who are fellow believers. Maybe these divine appointments are to encourage others that are around us. That's very possible. But we also have more to this. There's more depth to this. We understand that in Hebrews 10 we see that for you have need for endurance so that when you have done the will of God you may receive this incredible reward, what is promised. We see that very clearly. Second Thessalonians 3.13, Paul says the same thing to the church in Thessalonica. Don't grow weary of doing good. Keep on the good work. He says the same thing to the church in Corinth after delivering the incredible message of the rapture of the church. What does he say right after that? He says very clearly, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your work with the Lord is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. There's going to be times where you're weary, but the Lord's going to sustain you. We have need for endurance. We turn to him. And the reason for that solitude, to get, in, to get back into right thinking, right alignment with the word of God, is so that you're ready for the next, next task. So that you're ready to do more work. There will be a day where your work is over. That is not today. If you're breathing... Your time is still at hand. If, you're st- if you still have breath in your mouth, in your lungs, and a heartbeat in your chest, God is calling you to proclaim his name to the very end. Many of you have seen faithful warriors for the Lord preach his name to the very last breath. I've seen that. You've seen that. Think in your head some of these incredible servants of the Lord throughout the years. They have understood that we don't retire. We don't quit. We don't step back. We may have a different role, but we continue to do the work of the Lord. That's an encouragement when we see this. They're weary. They've had, some, they've had some incredible work that they've done, but God's calling them to something more. Okay, so as we go forward, we see this. What's the reasoning for all of this? What's the reason that he does this? Well, I'll, I'll just tell you ahead of time, and we're going to get to this at the end. I don't want to spend a lot of time. Potentially why he's doing this is so he can establish one of the, the most important, but certainly the first I am statements that Jesus is the bread of life and what that means. There's a visual to this. There's a physical understanding of who he is. There is a, an authority behind this miracle, but it's to establish this teaching that's going to happen later in John chapter 6. We'll see that at the end. No doubt about it. There's a potential that there's also a connection to what he will establish in the upper room. As we go through this, this 
Passion Week, what he establishes with his apostles to remember him by, there's a potential connection to that as well. So all of this is a setup as we go into this. All right, back to the text. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Turn back to John 6 with me. John 6. So Mark helps us to give a little bit of setup. We know what their situation was as they were going to this. Weary, tired, so was Jesus, but yet there was yet another divine appointment. And then I want you to notice something as we look at John 6. And here's what it says, starting at verse, verse chapter 2, since we've already read one a couple times. John 6, verse 2. Let's pick it up there. That a large crowd was following him, but because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick, they, they were following him. Jesus went up on the mountain. There he sat down with his disciples. So we saw, see this statement again. This is now multiple times we've seen people following Christ because of the signs that they saw. Now, just as a review, when we think about this, these signs that we see here, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs, it indicates to us they're not following him because they believe he is the Messiah. The Messiah that is, that is given to us in Scripture, that is. They're not following him because they truly believe he's the one who comes to take away the sins of the world. They're not following him because they believe he is going to die on a cross and be the propitiation. It's not that. They're following him because they're dazzled. They're impressed, and on top of that, they like these sorts of miracles because in the moment, it helps them Im- immediately. So you've got to think that there's all kinds of people with ailments and difficulties and, and sicknesses that are coming, and they've heard about this. Others that are coming just to watch a show. Others that, that just want to see the, what, the, what everybody's talking about. Let me see what this is about. But as we've talked about before, what signs, just as a quick review, the signs that were mentioned here when we think about John the Baptist asking this, and I I covered this verse a few weeks ago, but let's just look at the middle of this. Remember what Jesus tells the disciples of John the Baptist who were wanting verification. Are you the the Christ? Are you on the looking for? And this is just a, a microcosm of the things Jesus was doing all the time. So remember, after this, the six months that's going on, Jesus is doing these sorts of things. Look at verse 5. Blind receiving sight, lame walking, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. On top of that, we've just heard the apostles are doing the same thing in his name. The the fame is spreading. And and so the the magnitude of all of this, coupled with the idea that we're going to get to in just a moment, that there are a lot of people in and around Jerusalem because of Passover makes for a perfect storm that Christ preordained, that Christ knew was going to happen, as we see in the text, that all of these signs are there for us. And as we go forward in this, why the signs? Well, we know the signs are important. They're not something to discard. We've covered this before, and we we understand this. Chapter 5, verse 36 that we were just in, the testimony that I gave is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, they bear witness about me. This is proof that he is what the Bible claims he is, that he claims he is, that the apostles are claiming that he is. Keep in mind that signs aren't bad. They aren't bad. They are verification of who he is. But we go beyond that. We go beyond that. Notice in John 20, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. They're not bad, but it goes beyond that. He's the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. So we understand this is the same old story. 
People are following him for the wrong reasons. And as we go into this, don't make this 2,000 years ago exclusively. This is happening today. People are following Jesus for the wrong reasons. And they do it all around us. People who claim Christ, who you believe, understand it, they very well may not. They may, may very well be following Christ for some social reason. It makes them feel good. They think he can possibly hedge their bets for them. Maybe it's fire insurance. Maybe he thinks that there's going to be, or an individual may think that there's some great miracle coming around the bend for them that will solve their temporary problem. Folks, we have to be on the, on the ready to do these good works and sometimes to rebuke, correct, and train in righteousness with the Word of God. Be ready. Be ready to do that. Know your word. Understand it. I think our series we've gone through in the, in the first hour, and I'll reiterate what Justin mentioned. If you want to get a copy of that, please come. I have a copy myself. I'm already lending it to somebody else at school, so disc one, you're going to have to wait on if you want to borrow mine, but be versed in it. Know what we know. Understand what's truth. Understand the pure doctrine as taught by, by God's faithful servants. Make sure you understand it. All right, let's continue on. Verse 4 tells us this. You're in John 6, verse 4. And I'll bring this up on the screen as well. John 4, John 6, 4 says this. Says this very clearly, that now Passover, the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. So lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are you to buy bread so that these people may eat? So very clearly, we have a lot of people here. Now how many people? Hard to say for sure. We have a historian that gives us an idea. Now, Josephus writes this, and he's writing about the wars of the Jews. He is essentially writing this number, giving us this number. I'm not going to read all of this to you. Just want to show you at the bottom, I highlighted this part. He's trying to give us an idea of maybe how many Jews were there at different times, in particular, as we go forward in human history, even as forward as 70 AD, how many Jews could have potentially been there even in the overthrowing of, of Jerusalem. But this is what he says. He says 2,700,200 persons. That's what he came up with. Now, since then, critics of this number, critics, even ancient critics say he didn't do very good math. That's not really what it was. Listen, I'm not here to try to debate with you about how many people were there. Best guess is between 600,000 and 2 million. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And that's Husbands, wives, children, grandparents, aunts, uncles, people are flocking to Jerusalem to do this, to come to, to see, uh, to, to take part, rather, in the Passover. But while they're there, they're coming to see this miracle maker named Jesus that they've heard all about. While they're there, they're seeing that this is also something that they want to, to kind of maybe lay their eyes on, to understand this a little bit more to give us an idea of what we're dealing with here and where this is and get an idea of where the feeding of the 5,000 is. This is kind of an overview. This is the Sea of Galilee, clearly, what we're dealing with here. This is possibly where the desolate place is. This is the populated side. So people are going to come over here to see Jesus. They're going to follow them. So they're going over here to try to get away from the people, but the people are going to find them. And most people think that the feeding of the 5,000 happens a little bit around here. Now you're thinking, this doesn't do me any good. This is like an aerial view. Well, I did find one that's a little closer. I've personally never been here, but this is where they think it was. There is a, it looks like a large building that they have built here to maybe honor this. But 
This is possibly where Christ went afterward, maybe even the desolate place, they think, that they tried to go to. This is where this big open area that used to have grass, as the Bible mentions, and this is possibly where they came and went, where their, their boats kind of docked. Gives you an idea of what it looked like. And this doesn't help us with applying it to our lives, but it helps us to get an understanding of maybe what was going on here. Let's go forward here. The Passover was at hand. So this 600 to 2 million people. What does this mean? Why does it matter? Well, we consider this, and if we dispute these numbers, it doesn't really matter. It's a lot of people. These are Jews with their families from all over the Roman Empire. All over the Roman Empire that were, that were following, faithfully following the Jewish law, faithful following the, 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 the celebrations and the feasts. And what we see in verse 10, uh, 10 of, of the passage that we're in, it tells us that 5,000 men were present. So we have a hard, fast number. But most theologians think that number is deficient. Not because the Bible's deficient, but simply it's only mentioning men here. And these men, because they were coming for Passover, would have had their families as well. And because it's a desolate place, there's nowhere to get food. Philip tells us that. Andrew's telling us that we, we just got a little bit of bread. There's nothing we can do here. We're desperate. This is, this is certainly they would have come with their families. They wouldn't have left them on the other side and just 5,000 men came over. We're talking about ten, potentially that this number is closer to 20,000 people. So 20,000 people, if we think of this in its reality, going back to this, this is a lot of people to feed with five loaves and two fish. When you begin to start thinking about this, I know it's a Sunday school story, and we, we saw it in flannel graphs when we were little, some of us, and, and it's hard to maybe put your head around this, but try to consider maybe one of the stadiums we have around here. Just try to imagine going into any, any uh, arena that we have around here. Some sporting event where 20,000 people are showing up. Imagine the kind of concessions money that they put through and, and the kind of how many hamburgers and, and, and hot dogs and popcorn that we Just imagine how much food. I, I, I should have looked that up maybe. That might have been an interesting thing. But you can imagine just how much food is being processed in those concessions. And, and Jesus is able to, to do this with more than they need with five loaves and two fish. And we don't have to calculate how big were the loaves. How, was it a big fish? Was it, I don't care if it was two tuna. That's not enough. That's not enough. Sometimes we, we almost have to take ourselves away from how we envision this as kids and, and try to make this un, and get, gain a greater understanding of this. This is an incredible thing that we're about to see, and a, an amazing thing. But there's more to this. Turn to Matthew 14 very quickly. Let's look at Matthew's accounting of this. I think this is giving us another understanding of this. Matthew chapter 14. There's more than just the incredible miracle we're about to see. There's something even more amazing in this. As I've set you up through this, you notice Jesus is trying to get his apostles to understand you've done some great work here. You're weary, you're tired. Rest for a moment, but here comes some more work. Jesus in, in his incredible perfection. And I think, boy, this isn't in me. If I'm tired and I'm weary and I know these people are not coming for the right reasons, I'm not sure I'd have this reaction. Matthew chapter 14, I'll bring it up on the screen as well, but you're there. Now when Jesus heard this, the heard this here, if you look in your Bibles, the reason I wanted you to see it for yourself is Jesus had just heard about John the Baptist being killed. And I say that with some with some uh, solemnness. He loved, his, he loved his cousin. 
He understood who John the Baptist was. He, he understood the, the sacrifice that was made. He understood the life that he lived. He understood the, the importance of it. And he lost a friend and a brother, a, a, a cousin. He understood the difficulty of this. He just heard about John the Baptist's death. Now, if that's me, and I just heard about something, and I, I'm weary from all the work I've done, and I, I've just lost a very close family member and, 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 a, and a co-worker in, in this work of mine, in this ministry, I'm going to just say, listen, I, I feel what you guys are going through, but i got to get away. That's what I would do. You may do that too. As a matter of fact, I have done that. But look what Jesus does. He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place. We've heard that by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Look at this. He didn't say, get away from me. I need time. Don't you know what I've gone through? Look what he says. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Hmm. Our Savior, boy, he loves us. He loves even those who reject him. He loves even those who don't understand who he is. He, under, he loves even those that will be eternally judged. I'm always kind of surprised when I see how Jesus spoke to that rich young ruler in Mark. And he loved him and told him to sell everything he had, give to the poor, and follow me, knowing that he wasn't going to do it. I, I'm always startled when I see this accounting of Jesus looking on Jerusalem and weeping for it, knowing that they're rejecting him. But he loved them. And if you're in Christ, he loves you too. If you're not in Christ, he loves you too. But just think of this. If you're in Christ, he loves you. And as we've seen illustrated in, in the first hour, not because you're great, not because you're worthy, not because you're good. You're none of those things. For his own glory, for his own justice, for his own beauty and greatness and glory and praise, because of the great love in which he loved us, even while you were dead in your trespasses, he made you alive together in Christ. This is his heart. And you might think, well, that's Jesus. I can't do that. Well, you're called to. You're called to do this. Matthew 9, if you're in Matthew 14, 9, 36 through 37, you just go back a couple pages. It says, I'll give you a second, but I'm going to start reading it. 9.36, if you're in Matthew 14, Matthew 9.36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were, look at this, harassed and helpless. Isn't that interesting? What an interesting wording, wording we see there. Harassed and helpless. Sheep had gone astray. They, they don't have a way. They don't know. None of us have our own way. None of us can figure this out on our own. And the people around you who don't know the Lord, they're, they're also like this. They're harassed and helpless. They don't know what to do. They're like sheep without a shepherd. That's exactly what they are. When he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You see what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 9? He's not just saying, this is, my, this is just my work. No, it's your work too. Do we see the people around us who are harassed and helpless, lost, sheep without a shepherd, and do we see that their need is right in front of us? The harvest is ripe. It's ready. It's ready for us. And what do we see here? Colossians chapter 3. We do this for both the believer and the non-believer. Colossians 3. Here there is not Greek nor Jew, circumcised, under, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved. Look at look what we're to put on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Man, that list is hard for me. I need the Lord to help me do this. This is not in me. Not only am I not worthy of salvation, I don't have the capacity to do this without the Holy Spirit. Walking in, in the grace that he gives me, bearing with one another, 
And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. That's to the believer, but look, the non-believer too, for the lost. As we look at this text, look at the heart of, of evangelism. Keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Our hope, but he doesn't say just sit there. Look what he says to do. Have mercy on those who doubt. Do you have a compassionate, kind heart for those who are around you who are lost, going astray? Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Are you willing to tell them the hard truths of the gospel? That repentance message that is so offensive? Are you willing to do that? And to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Are you willing to call out false teachers when you see it and distance yourself from them? And maybe, maybe have to make hard decisions about relationships. Do you have that kind of mercy and love and kindness for those who are lost around you? That's what we see. And that's what Christ is challenging his apostles and you to do today. Christ had compassion when he was tired. Christ had compassion when he was hurt. Christ had kindness and he had love for the people, even those who wouldn't believe. We need that same sort of heart. You get that through your work, the work of the Holy Spirit through you. All right, back to John chapter 6. John 6. I'm going to pick this up at verse 5. Let's get to this miracle. We got a miracle and we got a problem on our hands because we got a lot of people and not a lot of food. Let's run through this fairly quickly. John 6, 5 through 9. So he says this, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said, to the, said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii would not be enough for bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's Peter, Simon's, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy who has five loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? What can we do with this little bit of nothing? What could we do with this? John MacArthur gives us an idea of this problem. Here's what he says. This is a, the introduction of Jesus articulating an impossible situation. He wants to verbalize an impossible situation. He wants to make it clear for this narrative for all time, right now, that this was an impossible situation. There was no resources. This is a desolate place. There's nowhere to go to buy bread. There's many people. That's absolutely not possible. Immediate food for 20,000 plus. Are you kidding? And he's really not looking for help from Philip, which I think is funny. He's not looking for some suggestion. What's he doing? Verse 6 says, this he was testing him by, for he already knew what he was going to do. What was the test? The test was to find out how much faith Philip really had. Not just Philip, all of them. Do you really believe what I'm about to do? Do you see what's going on? Warren Wearsby says it this way. The first step is not to measure our resources, but to determine God's will and trust him to meet the need. The practical lesson is clear. Whenever there's a need, give all that you have to Jesus and let him do the rest. Begin with what you have, but be sure to give it all to him. The disciples had two suggestions for solving the problem. Either send the people away to find other food or own food, or raise enough money to buy a bit of uh, bread for everybody. As far as the disciples were concerned, they were in the wrong place at the wrong time and had nothing could be done. I think this is funny. You know Weir's being his, his humor. With that kind of approach, they would have made ideal committee members. <laughs> Someone has defined this committee as a group of people who individually can do nothing and collectively decide that nothing can be done. <laughs> if you could just hear Weirsby saying that, right? Isn't that funny? But here's what we have. Here's the takeaway from this very quickly before we move on to this miracle. Here's what we have. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4. Trust Christ to meet the need. We want you to know, brothers, and this is him 
encouraging those who are giving for the ministry and giving. This is resources financially, but it goes beyond that. About the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. We covered this in Sunday school several months ago. For in severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. This church in Philippi. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Trust the Lord with what you have and let him do the rest. Give all you have, be willing to give beyond what you think you can, and you trust the Lord. It may seem impossible, but God is going to make this happen. So let's get to this miracle, John 6, 10 through 13. I'll bring it up on the screen. Jesus said, having the people sit down, John six ten. Now there was a much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted, when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten it. Wow. When we look at this from Luke and Mark's perspective, we know there are 5,000 men, and it says he sat them in groups of 50, and then we see from Mark, 50 and 100. So 150, we see these two numbers given to us, about 50 each or 100 each, groups by hundreds and fifties. And then it says Jesus did something interesting. It says specifically in Mark 6, he takes the five loaves, the two fish, and he looked up to heaven, which I think is such a cool visual. He looks up to heaven, and he's blessing this. He's, he's, he's praying to the Father, which remember, he's one with the Father, and he's praying for the Father's will, which is his will, and yet in the flesh he is doing this certainly as an example for us. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set them to the people, and he divided the two fish among them. I think this is important to understand as we look at these two passages, these multiple passages really, and then these two examples of quotes from MacArthur and Wearsby that we trust the Lord in this. It's so often when we have difficulties, and, and maybe there are difficulties within ministry, okay? Let's think of this even in context. Hardships in ministry where we don't know our answer, right? We don't know what's going to come next. We know what the Lord's will is, and we're willing to do it, but we don't know how God's going to do this. And so often we, we meet in committees, and we, we get together, and we try to solve things, and we forget to pray. We forget to leave this in the Lord's hands. I'm always struck by Hezekiah when he had this huge problem, right? Huge problem. Jerusalem's going to get ransacked. Sennacherib's on the, at the gates, and he gets this accusing letter. But what does he do? He and Isaiah go into the temple, and they lay this letter at the feet of the Lord in the temple. You're going to have to handle this. I'm going to give you all I got, but you've got to handle this. Let's never forget to do this. Jesus does this. Jesus does this. Look at some examples of this. Mark 7. When he's about to heal a deaf man, what does he do? And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Apaphatha, that is, be opened. Apatha, rather, be opened. He's praying to the Father. He's one with, yet he's giving us an example, praying to the Father. John 11, famous, Lazarus being resurrected. What does he do? They took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes. Same exact expression. Said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. He prays to the Father. The power's within him, yet he's telling us. And then in the, the most famous of all prayers, John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted his eyes to heaven. He knows where the source is. He is the source. He's showing us what to do. You get into a problem in ministry. You get into a problem in your walk with Christ. You, you know what the Word of God says, 
But let's not forget to pray to the one who has the power. Let's not forget to involve the one who can really fix the problem, the author and perfecter of life. And then notice this about this, this incredible thing. After this takes place, immediately this miracle happens. It, there's no progression. It just seems as, I, I, I cannot wait to watch the heavenly Blu-ray of this and see exactly if that's such a thing. By the way, it's not in the Bible, excuse me, if I'm offending you here. Whatever we can do, I hope we can go back and look at some of this. Exactly how, what did the apostles see as this multiplied? As they're handing this out, how did this work? And then all of a sudden, these five loaves, these two fish, turned into 12 full baskets after handing everything out. Can you imagine? What did that actually look like? And you think 20,000 people who, who still didn't get it, we're going to find out later, they want more signs. Did they think it was a trick? I mean, in our day and age, we might think it's some sort of technology, but imagine 2,000 years ago, it's a wonder of what happened because here's what we see very clearly. Everyone was satisfied. It wasn't just a little bit. They had all they wanted. He took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them. They were seated, and as much as they wanted, not just a little bit, as much as they wanted, Matthew says it this way, they ate and were satisfied, all they could get, and they took about 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. Man, that's our God, isn't it? That's our God in everything that we do. Look at this quote from Spurgeon when he says, talks about this. There must be a cleanup after a banquet. And it's interesting how he says this because he's talking about what God does and how he does it in abundance. He says this, they went around and gathered up the fragments that remained, about 12 baskets full. I can't read that up here. I need to look at my notes. This is, as often been remarked, teaches us economy in everything that we do for God. Not economy as to giving to him, but as to the use of the Lord's money. Break your alabaster boxes, pour out the the sacred nard and the blessing and with blessed wastefulness, for that very wastefulness is the sweetness of the gift. But when God entrusts you with any means to use for him, use those means with discretion. When we have money, give to us for giving to us for his God's cause, we, and this is important, we should be more careful with it than if it were our own. So there's a side lesson here is that God is going to give into abundance. And folks, we've felt that here a little bit. God has been very good to us, not because we're better than anyone else, but God has a plan. And when he gives you resources, the church you're at resources, a ministry you're involved with resources, be careful how you deal with those resources. This is a challenge, by the way, to your elder board. And so I I take very strong conviction from this, and I'm sure others do. But we need to be careful what we do with the resources God gives us. But it goes beyond that. This is spiritual too. Look at what we see in Ephesians 3. Very beautiful passage about what God does for us. And when we think of this in the context of Ephesians 3, 8 through 19, this is about the gospel. This is about Paul proclaiming it to the Gentiles. We don't have time to go there. And even in verse 10, this extends to the church. And when he talks to the church in verse 10 of Ephesians 3, setting this up, that we make him known to the people around us, including the rulers and authorities, if you go back and look at that sometime. And you're rooted and grounded in the love of Christ that comes through the Holy Spirit. But look at what it says in that light, in context of Ephesians 3. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that was asked or think, all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That's the middle of the book, by the way. He doesn't end it here. He just says it that way. This is to his glory. God gives in abundance. We've enjoyed that. You've enjoyed that. American Christian, we've all enjoyed that. 
This is to God's glory. It isn't because you're great. It isn't because you were better than the apostles. It isn't because God loves you more. This is for his glory. Be careful with what you do, with the resources that you have and the abundance that you have as we see this. Now let me land this plane. John chapter 6, verse 14. Last two verses. John 6, 14. What happens after this miracle? Incredible miracle. Verse 14 says this. I'll bring it up on the screen, but you should get back there because we're going to spend some time in John. When the people saw that sign that had been done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. You think they got it? Not quite. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus knew something was going on here that wasn't quite right. Wasn't up to snuff. It says they wanted to make him king. Well, where do we get this prophet thing? What's this from? What prophet? What are they speaking of? Well, they're speaking of Deuteronomy 18. Peter's going to also make reference to this in Acts 3, but quoting Deuteronomy 18. This is the promise they had. They knew they were waiting for. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. This prophet. Now keep in mind, they twisted this prophet. They wanted him to be king. It says it right in the text, right? They wanted him to overthrow the Romans. They wanted that kingdom to come right now. What they didn't want, and Jesus knew their hearts, is for their hearts to change. They didn't want to see their greatest need. They didn't want to see their sin, and they didn't want to hear repentance. What they wanted was kingdom now, and they wanted the Romans gone. Be king for us now. And it says they were going to do it by force. Doesn't that tell you that they didn't really understand? As if you can make Jesus do something. The last sermon I gave to you, I had a section called Jesus as your genie. As if the God of the universe is going to do your bidding. As if the Almighty who breathed out stars is going to listen to you and what your desires are. But that's what they wanted to do. They didn't understand who they're who they were dealing with. They didn't get it, and neither did the people. But look at what Peter does in his very first sermon. We look at this after the first miracle. It's not his first sermon, but it's his first one after a miracle. This is after preaching in Solomon, or it's preaching in Solomon's portico after the healing of the lame beggar. Look at what he says. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. He gets to the heart of the matter right away, and then he brings it back. Look in the middle of this passage. Talking about this, verse 22, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him, whatever he tells you. It shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and who came after him proclaimed these days. Repent and believe on Jesus. Look at, and, and as we look at verse 20 here, and I went back, oops, oh boy, what did I just do? There we go. Look at, look at verse 20. Times of refreshing may from the presence of the Lord, he may send the Christ appointed for you. He makes it personal. For you, you need to consider who Jesus is, that you must repent and believe on him. You need to turn. It's very personal. This is extremely important. We don't manufacture a Messiah of our own, as we heard people do in our one, right? We hear that idea of creating a God. MacArthur has something to say about this, as you can imagine. Jesus does not acquiesce to the whims and our whims and fancies. He comes to no no man on the man's terms. People can't manipulate him for their own selfish ends. He doesn't promise 
unregenerate people that unregenerate what unregenerate people want. Jesus will not be a quick fix to, to felt your needs or to help your needs. He will not be the one who just gives you temporary satisfaction. And if you market him that way, this is to you and me, if you market him that way, you're on your own because he's not there. Hmm, that's scary. People do not come to Christ for what they want. They come to Christ for what he demands. He calls on sinners to mourn their sin for their sin, to be broken, penitent, acknowledge him as sovereign Lord, be obedient to him, live for him, maybe die for him, serve him as, he, as his slave and suffer for him and be persecuted for him. And when he gave that message in the rest of the chapter, chapter why they were gone, they were gone. Jesus always drives the superficial crowd away with the hard demands of the gospel. They left and they left forever, some of them. They were gone and they were gone forever. So what does this mean to us right now, right here? Stay in John 6, but let me give you a couple setups here. Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but it's those who are sick. If you don't think you need a new heart, if you don't think you need to deal with your sin, Jesus won't make any sense. Jesus won't even be appealing to you, not for who he really is. If you don't understand your absolute spiritual bankruptcy, this isn't going to make any sense at all. I've not come to call the righteous but the sinners to repentance. He's not saying that there are any righteous. He's saying there are people who think they are. He's saying this world's full of people who think they're worthy and good enough. And they're just better than this guy, so I'm good enough. That's not what he came for. Verse, chapter 4, verse 17 of Matthew. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does Jesus say his food is in John 4? Jesus says when they were talking to him about, do you have anything to eat? This is in Samaria, in Samaria after this dealing with the Samaritan woman. He says, what do you, what, don't you have anything to eat? Jesus says in verse 34 of, of John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. That's what we see. One more from Wearsby. As you read the Gospels, as you read the Gospel records, note that our Lord was never impressed by the great crowds. He knew that their motives were not pure, and most of them followed him in order to watch his miracles of healing. Bread and circuses was Rome's formula, Rome's formula for keeping the people happy, and people today are satisfied with that kind of diet. Give them food and entertainment, and they're happy. Romans set aside 93 days each year for public games at, at government expenses. I'd say we spend even more time than that. It was cheaper to entertain the crowds than to fight them or jail them. We must n never be deceived by the popularity of Jesus Christ among certain kinds of people today. Very few want him as Savior and Lord, and many want him only as healer or provider, or the one who rescues them from their problems that they have made for themselves. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life, Jesus says in John 5. So as we're back in John chapter 6, we need to look at this for just a second. I'm not going to look at the full text. The reason I put this up here, we'll look at just the middle of this, is I'd like you to read this this week. I'd like you to read John 6, 22 through 40. I never intended to read the whole thing to you, but this is, as we should as Bereans, after delivering a message that begins John 6, look at the rest of the context through this week. As we go into this most holy of weeks, as we consider who Christ is, as we go, this is a full year before the triumphal entry, we need to make sure we understand who he truly is. And in John 6, we see what he establishes here, which is super important for us to understand today. John 6, 22. 
On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten and the bread. This is exactly what we had just been dealing with after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because, of, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're not seeking me because you think I'm the Son of God. You don't know that I'm the Son of Man. You don't understand your sin. You just liked the food. You liked what I did for you physically. The satisfaction that you got today. They had the wrong view of Jesus. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, What must we do to, to, to do what must what must we do to be doing this work, these works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Huh? Did you just say, huh? What sign? 20,000 people just got fed with five loaves and two fish. For six months they'd heard about his incredible miracles and the miracles of his apostles. For six months prior to that, he had performed miracle after miracle after miracle. But that wasn't the message they wanted to hear. Look at what he said. So they said to him, what sign do you say? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of heaven is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You're going to read the rest to yourself, but this is the first of the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the life giver. I am all that you need. Jesus said, I don't need real food. I need to do the will of the Father. You, don't, you understand, we all understand the physical need of food and, and shelter and, and rest. and To have all of it, we get that. That's temporary, though. That is not your most pressing need. Ask any believer who's dead. Oh, you can't. You can't. They understand what their greatest need is, and Jesus satisfied it because they repented and believed. They understood their great, they certainly understand their greatest need. We should understand our greatest need, but it isn't just us, it's the people around us who so struggle with this same sin. They struggle with the circuses, they struggle with the satisfaction, they struggle, struggle with the moment. And we have to have glasses that see eternity. we got to look through the lens of Scripture and see eternity. We have to understand that a nearsighted view is a sinful view. We have to see that our Savior is the bread of life. He is all that we need for all of eternity. What a beautiful Savior we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the time that we've had. A long time. But we thank you for the time that we've had to study this incredible miracle. So much more I could have studied in this and so much more we could have dug out. But we thank you for what you've taught us today. We thank you for the beauty of it. We thank you for the absolute truth that you hammer us with today, that we need to see you correctly, that our doctrine's got to be straight. Our theology's got to be of the right understanding. We need to use your word to give us a better, clearer view of who you are. 
And for those of us who are in the, in the faith, we need to be able to articulate to that to the people around us who are, are lost sheep without a shepherd, scattered, broken, hurt, and don't know the way. We know the way. Thank you for giving us the way. Thank you for being the bread of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.